Welcome to Committing Faith in Public. This is the podcast for people who want to be inspired by individuals and communities of faith doing good work in public. Our guests tell stories of their work of weaving a more just, kind, and diversity-inclusive society. Our starting place for stories is Oklahoma because that is where we live and because many people, both in Oklahoma and beyond, are surprised when they learn that interreligious-friendly, pro-democracy, diversity-welcoming, public-good-oriented religion even exists in Oklahoma. So through this podcast, we're spreading good news and encouraging you in your faith and public life work. I'm Gary paluso Verden, President Emeritus at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and working on the Religion and Public Life Initiative for the seminary. Welcome to a joint podcast of Ascends at Boston Avenue and Committing Faith in Public. As a part of Ascends, my name is Philip Boone, and my co-host is Caitlin Drake. Also co-hosting is Dr. Gary Peluso-Verdend of Committing Faith in Public. Before we begin, I'd like to state that the views represented in this podcast are those of the individuals in this conversation and not the official position of Boston Avenue United Methodist Church. Today our guests are the pastor of Historic Vernon AME, Reverend Robert Turner, and Boston Avenue Senior Pastor, Reverend David Wiggs. So to start with, Reverend Turner, how did you and Reverend Wiggs first meet? I met Pastor Wiggs um, really after not long after I first came to Tulsa. He uh, attended a Welcome to Tulsa event held by my church. Uh, I think he got the wrong time because he came like right as we were leaving. But I'm happy he still came because I had the opportunity to uh, to have the chance to meet him and exchange information. And he impressed me so much. He was I um, mean he was really the only uh, person that was not black who showed up to my Welcome to Tulsa event, and that stood out to me a lot and um, just really opened up the door to a wonderful uh, friendship. And he also likes taking me out to eat, and I like that <laughs> even more. <laughs> Why did you want to weave a relationship between the congregations that both of you serve? Um, I think it's important. Um, anytime you can collaborate and especially in God's house uh, with people from any background um, I think that's important because I don't I know that you know God doesn't really care about the color of people's skin um, and so that shouldn't be something that we care about as far as a hindrance of worshiping and collaborating together and uh, I'm just privileged to have someone that that is willing to uh, walk alongside uh, in service and in ministry um, and oftentimes um, people have this crazy notion that they can say they just that they, that they don't see race, but I don't mind if you see my race. I just want you not to hold it against me. You know, I don't believe in this colorblind stuff. Uh, and I think that David uh, is really a genuine person that, that really sees people for who they are. And the congregation in Boston Avenue is just remarkable. And uh, I'm just excited to have partnered and to continue to be able to partner with them in various ministries. I thought it was important when I got the invitation. Um, I didn't know Robert at all, uh, but that his congregation invited me to come help welcome him. Um, 
with the unfortunate and tragic history of race relations in Tulsa, uh, for them to reach out, one, I, I think was significant. And so I wanted to meet the new pastor. And, of course, we're also both Methodist. So uh, that's another plus, and that often uh, in communities where I've served, uh, there haven't been representatives from our different African-American Methodist denominations. And so when I've worked cross-racially, it's been with mostly Baptist pastors and others. Uh, But there's something that makes us more akin just because we share that common history and theology, uh, which I think helps us um, feel comfortable with each other to begin with, despite the difficult conversations that we need to have and our communities having. So I think it's important for us as a predominantly white congregation uh, to make sure that we're taking strides or making efforts to build bridges with the African-American community in all kinds of different ways. I just saw this as a a special opportunity, and it was uh, kind of interesting at the time. We had a young African-American pastor uh, who wasn't pastoring a church at the time and was attending our church, and so he and I had talked about going together. Um, and so I thought that was a, a positive, too, that also kind of contributed to our relationship as he was thinking about starting a church and leading churches and thinking about Methodism. That was not his background. So kind of several influences came together that day. Uh, I really never dreamed that I'd be the only white pastor that showed up, but I actually said to Robert, you know, as I was leaving, um, unfortunately, I think that represents the state of our relationships in Tulsa, uh, racially, so it it just kind of highlighted when we first met. Man, we've got a lot of work to do, uh, and if we can work together, that that would be a, a big positive for both of us as people, but also for our churches. How have you sought to help the congregations you serve be in relationship with each other? We've had, um, you know, we've been working on this for a while. Um, here at Boston Avenue in a, in a variety of ways. Uh, we've been the host of the Martin Luther King Jr. Commemoration Society's community-wide service. They invited us years ago uh, to be the host church and have continued to invite us to do that. I was on staff here at the time as an associate and on that board. I thought that was a, an important symbolic way for us to open our doors and say we're part of the whole community Um, even though our congregation is not greatly racially mixed, is that we're making that effort. We're interested in those relationships. And I think that's the the thing that often white churches don't understand. They say things like, well, anybody can come here. We welcome black people, those kind of things. Uh, Yet they've made no effort uh, to take a step toward the black community or get, get to know other people in their community of different races. And so, um, the, the kind of work that I'm hoping we can continue to do is to give our people those opportunities to get to know people of faith in a deep and genuine way over a series of days, months, years, and a whole variety of events. So we've, we've have a variety of things we've been doing uh, to help facilitate that. Yes. Um, we have, um, the choirs, uh, do joint, uh, selections and events together just most recently. Um, and we have held, uh, through the Holy Conversation that you all have, a uh, series of discussions. Um, and I'm just really uh, excited and grateful to the members of Boston Avenue for uh, helping us uh, as we seek to renovate and restore our church. Um, we really appreciate that. And um, pretty much 
I think that the congregations uh, kind of feed off of the will and wishes of their pastors. Um, both of David and I have a very congenial relationship where um, I feel like I can share pretty much anything with him, um, and I feel like he knows he can do the same, and just excited to try to um, show some sense of unity. Um, even if even though it's, it's just two churches, I think uh, two historic churches uh, for that matter, uh, I think that sends a, a strong message uh, of what is potentially possible for for the city of Tulsa. It's a long time ago I learned about the difference between a front room welcome and a kitchen welcome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And so as you progress in relationship between uh, two congregations, I'm assuming you're at least at a front room welcome yeah. at this point. Kitchen welcomes are, are, are I think, are more, um, uh, they take, take longer to get at. And sometimes there's some obstacles along the way to really... Um, uh, opening up to each other. And I'm wondering, have you encountered any obstacles yet? Or as you think forward on this relationship, have you imagined some obstacles that you may need to pay attention to? Well, go ahead. I was going to say, when we, when, when uh, David and I first talked about trying to get our membership together to do ministry, um, um, one of the things that we both realized is that they may not know each other as well as they probably would like to before they start doing ministry. And so that's when the idea about um, having conversations um, and singing and things of that sort. So And possible now, you know, ministry, ministerial work. So I think that oftentimes people, even people with good hearts that want to uh, work together, I think still that relationship level of that kitchen uh, sort of introduction, uh, getting to know them. Uh, is 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 needed. Um, I, I like to eat, and so uh, getting to know me over food, you find out a lot about me um, just that way. And uh, I think that's a natural habit. You know, I think that's even biblical. You know, Jesus mm-hmm. ate mm-hmm. with people, and mm-hmm. I think that says a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I think that you can you can really do a lot um, by just small fellowship kitchen style uh, conversations. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think. One example of this uh, for me and I think for our congregation that was a a learning just in the early stages of our relationship was we had uh, this idea at Boston Avenue that it would be great. The movie Hidden Figures had come out, and it would be great to watch that movie and discuss it. And when I mentioned it to Robert when we were having lunch one day, you know, he hesitated. And I could tell there was – it wasn't as great an idea in his mind as I had thought it was. Um you know, and as we talked about it, what I realized is for us, for white people, it was uh, a historical movie and it was inspiring because of what these women did. And it's, we want to do more of that, but it wasn't really a lived experience of prejudice, of suffering, um, of segregation. And so it really did touch me uh, just in our conversation to realize for his people that was their history in a whole different way than it is for our people. And that was their family's experience. And so I realized so often as a majority culture, we come at something from a, a kind of a theoretical or a cognitive, we're going to discuss an idea. Uh, and in situations like this, uh, where you're dealing with marginalization and oppression and suffering, uh, that's a whole different level of experience. And so 
uh, you know, those are the kind of learnings we get to have that we would never have if we don't get to know someone well enough to have that conversation. Um, and as soon as we started talking about it, I was like, oh, of course, that's a different conversation. And for us to think that's where we could start the relationship, which was basically saying, hey, let's start in the kitchen. Uh, when they had no reason to trust us, they don't really know us. Why are we, you know, why are you going there? Um, you know, I think that's a, a, a great learning for all kinds of circumstances. Right, right. Any follow up to that? No, absolutely. He uh, great analysis. It, it was I didn't I didn't know he could read me that well, uh, but yeah, he's absolutely right. It was it was something that I felt could be done, but maybe not a first step. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've taken those other first steps that are needed. So something like that could be plausible today. Cool, cool. All right. Well, that's that. This question kind of leads into the next one for me because. Uh, here in Tulsa, we are uh, a year away from marking the 100th anniversary of race massacre uh, that happened here in 1921. Um, and I know the civic community has been gearing up, if that's the right word, uh, in terms of how to mark that occasion. I haven't heard too much from from the from the faith community in any united sort of way uh, about uh, the way that that we might mark it. And I'm, I'm wondering from, from each of your perspectives in the congregations you lead, um, how, how does your Christian faith inform how you understand churches ought to be involved in marking this anniversary? That's a very good question and a very uh, personal one for me um, because the church that I pastor has a very intimate history with the race massacre of 1921. Uh, with our basement being the only thing intact um, that survived is still here uh, today. And that's a, our sanctuary is like the f- oldest thing that was built in the immediate aftermath uh, of the massacre. Um, and Vernon being the oldest landowner in North Tulsa, Greenwood District. Um, and so we lost members. You know, um, the pastor was run out of town. Um, um, we 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 really haven't um, bounced back financially since. I know that was a long time ago, but I mean we lost the parsonage. Well, we lost the church we were worshiping in. That was built in 1908. The church we were building was destroyed, and our basement was damaged. Uh, but thankfully, it survived, and we got like nothing as far as insurance payments, like at all. And we lost a great bit of our membership because they left town. Some were killed, and so to. I don't know many churches that can survive that type of blow. Um, you know, losing a church that you worship in and the church you're building and losing a large portion of your membership that were given major dollars. Um, and so we, thankfully, we, we did rebuild. Um, and to be quite honest, um, we rebuilt without any help, you know, from any faith community at that time like and people watched us rebuild people watched our church burn mm-hmm. um and like nothing 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 happened and so um it's kind of still a sore topic for a lot of us um and so to me uh the 100th anniversary um of it uh is is a very complicated even to even talk about mm-hmm. issue because if you look at Greenwood 100 years later, it has less today than it did 100 years ago. 
And how does that happen? You know, how does that happen where in the height of Jim Crow segregation, uh, you had more then than you do now? So now fast forward 100 years later, and the only thing, only entity that's black-owned on historic Greenwood Avenue is a church. You know, how does that happen? And so um, how the church can celebrate it collectively, um, I, I wish the church uh, and it's always hindsight. I wish the church was a church in 1921 that God wanted it to be. Um, but but even since it wasn't, you know, how can we how can we address that? I'm I'm not for pumping 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 ceremony pumping um, uh, trying to make things look like it's better than what it was. I'm I'm not for vain glory. Um, I I really. I mean, to be quite honest, the only church that's really tried to do anything since uh, has been like Boston Avenue, uh, and All Souls has done a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, I'm not for, uh, and I thought about this, and I'm still thinking about this and praying about this, I'm not for having something that includes people and entities that are looking for a photo op. You know, and just, you know, we want to do something now that the media and the cameras are here and you haven't, you know, done anything like Mm -hmm. at all Mm -hmm. for the Greenwood Mm -hmm. District, like period in the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. And so and and really Boston Avenue up until since since David's been here, you know, and so um, I'm I'm really praying on that, you know, what that looks like, how we can do that. But. I, I'm I'm just really not for things done for show. Sure. Um, because you're dealing with real trauma, real life, real sin, you know, and, and, and I think we ought to call it what it was. That was sin. What happened in 1921 was sin and sinful. Um, and, and how do you address it? And you first have to call it out. Mm-hmm. And um, um, But, yeah, that's all I'm, I'm going to say right now on that. Well, that's a substantive comment. Thank you. Yeah. David? Yeah, I think related to that, that the role of the white community and the white churches um, and what we've talked about here is uh, sort of in the history of Judaism and Christianity, uh, the role of lament and confession. I think that's, I think as Robert was saying, not only have there not been the um, personal offers of assistance in the time or since then, there hasn't been the economic responses that might have been appropriate anywhere along the way uh, or the governmental responses um, but the churches are just a the white churches are a part of that absence as well um, so I think we do have some confession I think we need to lament the tragedy you know uh, it's a commemoration um, I wish that we had a whole lot to celebrate I wish it was yeah, right. oh the 100th right. anniversary and Tulsa has done X, Y, and Z, and look, oh, all this great stuff has happened. Uh, And as as Robert is saying, maybe in some ways we've gone backwards rather than forwards. So I think, you know, for the white church, it really is acknowledging and recognizing that, uh, lamenting that in in a worship kind of setting would be the way a church could do that. So I think that's, I mean, that's what we're talking about. I think that's what we will uh, eventually that we'll hold a service for our church people and inviting the community uh, to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So I think often in conversations around race relations, it's almost become a buzzword, this word reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it 
has started to almost be diluted mm-hmm. in, in my experience of of meaning. So coming at this conversation of, of our relationship, what does reconciliation mean for you and for your congregation? Yeah, um, reconciliation really is a, a term that uh, is, first of all, it's a theological term, right, and concept of, of bringing back, it describes us, the world being reconciled to God through Christ. And so um, that's that's like the, the origin of of the, of the term and 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 to use it societally uh, uh, is fine, but we have to understand. And I know I don't want to go to church, but we are in church, and I'm a pastor. Uh, and, and in order for us to have been reconciled to Christ, uh, somebody had to pay. We were reconciled to God through Christ by His blood that He shed. So He had to pay a price. He was He was held responsible for our sins. Um, so if you want to place that onto society, who has been held responsible for the race massacre, the worst race massacre in American history? If you want to have reconciliation, okay, that means we're, we're, being bought, we're being brought back. But what? who has actually paid for that damage? Um, and today, nobody. Like, not one person has been charged with a crime to this day. Um, not one dime of an insurance claim uh, has been paid. Not one dime of reparations, you know, has been paid. So I think that when you, when you use a theological term like reconciliation, you have to understand what that means theologically and what that should mean societally. And I think to just ask for reconciliation without any type of reparation or any type of uh, someone did this, and so there ought to be some form of justice. You know, uh, God loves us, but he still had to send his son to die for our sins. And I think that we, we celebrate that during the communion. But I think we kind of lose that message of you still have to pay for sin. And, 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 and I'm, I'm all for reconciliation. Um, I do think that if anybody is to lead that, it ought to be the church. Um, but I, I think that we, we, we also need to understand the aspect and the relationship that justice has to reconciliation. Um, it's it's kind of like, you know, um, a man slap you in the face uh, and then the next man asks you out for dinner. You know, that you may not want to go out to eat with somebody that just slapped you in the face. Um, well, you add not only did he slap you in the face, but he slapped you in the face, he killed your daddy, and he killed your children, and he took all your money, and now he says, let's go get something to eat. Most folk would not want to go eat with such an individual. Uh, and so I think that uh, before we go out to eat, we need to have some um, some true justice and calling to the fact that you just slapped me in the face, killed my husband and my children, and stole all my money. And I think that until we do that, then to ask for reconciliation really is something that is done, in my humble opinion, to get out of actually doing justice work. Uh, and I think if we're considered to be citizens and humans and all part of God's kingdom, then why not Why not have that for us as well? Well, I think we're, you know, uh, as Robert talks about that, makes me think of um, the South Africa example. Mm-hmm. You know, they did truth and reconciliation. Right. Um, you know, and that's, uh, the truth step may be way harder than the reconciliation step, but it's short-circuited. I agree with Robert. When we try to jump to reconciliation, 
I think we short circuit the process and we do not understand the historical context if we think that we can go there uh, without going through the hard steps uh, of what he just described. I think a lot of folks, and we've kind of danced around this answer, so I, I think I know what you're going to say, but I think a lot of folks, um, they, they want to separate church from the rest of the world. I want to come to church. I don't want to. I don't want to talk about race. I don't want to talk about politics. But do faith communities have an obligation to to be in this work, to work towards reconciliation, to be in these conversations like this? Yes, um, I do. I think you probably knew I was going to say that. <laughs> um, I think that, uh, and I think not only should the faith community say something about it. I think to not say something about it is saying something about it. You know, I'm from Alabama, and the 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 place the, uh, where Birmingham is, where Martin Luther King was in Birmingham jail and wrote a letter. He was talking to faith leaders and how their silence on issues is is still saying something. You know, like you can't be silent about injustice. And I think as a faith community, we've been silent about issues of race for too long, and that emboldens those who want to continuously divide us. And it has emboldened those. So I think Billy Graham even regretted he didn't speak much more on racial uh, tensions in America. Um, And when the church is silent, people take note of that. You know, like a child notices what you discipline them for and what you don't discipline them for. And so the things you don't discipline them for, they think that's a sign of you giving them license to do. And I think the same thing with the church. When the church is silent on certain issues, it gives license to the congregants to say, well, this is fine. And I can still go to church and still worship God and still be a Sunday school teacher, still be a praise leader and still participate in racist activity. Um, Sorry for hitting the table. And still participate in racist activity. Um, And I think that that's, I think the church's silence, uh, particularly in Tulsa, has, has spoken volumes. What do you envision the future relationship between your congregations to look like? I hope it looks like a lot more dinners. And, <laughs> and, but seriously, I hope it looks like a lot more intentional work to help build a more beloved community uh, where all of God's children are loved, valued, and supported uh, and given the tools they need to be all that God has for them to be. When I think our recent two-part Holy Conversation where part one, we looked at the history not only of Methodism but particularly uh, – of the African Methodist Episcopal Church and AME Zion and CME, uh, which are all, you know, rooted in the African-American experience and came out of the white-dominated Methodist part of the experience. Um, And, for again, for us to acknowledge the racism and the segregation that happened uh, is important. And then as we see that, I think it gives us a better opportunity to have a genuine relationship. But also, we've got to be willing to deal with that discomfort often enough that we actually get to know each other as individuals. So, you know, the first time Robert comes to speak at our church, he is a black man or a black pastor because people don't know him. But hopefully, over the course of time, they get to know him as a person instead of just a role or just a skin color, they get to know his heart, they get to know how he thinks, they get to know what's important to him, they get to know his past experience. That changes the whole tenor of the relationship like it does for any of us. Um, 
But I think because we live in a community that still is largely segregated, for a lot of people, they don't have those experiences anywhere. They live in a segregated community. They shop at segregated places. They go to church in segregated houses of worship for the most part. Um, and so I, there's just a long way to go. As, as much as we want to say, oh, it's not like it used to be, we have a long way to go. If you were to give some advice to other congregational pairings who might want to try this kind of, of difficult work, I'm curious what advice you might have at this point. You mentioned earlier about, you know, take it slow uh, uh, and let the relationship build because you can't do anything really productive without trust. So, and I know that uh, you know Southern Hills and Antioch have had a long relationship. You know, mm-hmm. have, have have started uh, several years ago now a relationship. But if, if I'd love to see this kind of thing multiplied, right? So, what advice right. would you give if kind of a couple of congregations start getting together, their leaders getting together, and uh, what can they do? What should they? How should they go about it? I just think you need to clone David Wiggs and, <laughs> and just send him out to different churches. Uh, no, I really, uh, I think it's all about leadership um, and whoever sits in those seats of, of leadership at the various churches, um, I think is incumbent upon them to see it as a first needed ministry um, and, and secondly, something that they are, are willing to put effort and energy behind. Uh, and that's something that you just can't decide in a in a weekly staff meeting. You know, that's something that has to really be studied and, and collaborated. And but it still can't be so structured or regimented that it feels uh, like it is it is just a check the box type of ministry. It has to be organic, you know, as well. And that's when relationships come into play. And um, and I know personalities have a lot to do with that too. But I, I just think you have to have a willing leader. Um, and that, because membership sees and they can feel what a pastor's heart is. And if the pastor's not really in it, if he puts it off on like some program director, no offense to program directors, they do wonderful work, uh, it won't work. It won't last. And I also think um, my experience has been with many white people, white Tulsans, Southside churches, uh, is they think that. Well, I don't live in Greenwood District, so that's not my issue. That doesn't impact me. I don't know why I would give that any time or energy. So I think until we get a deeper or broader understanding, not only of Tulsa history but the history of racism, um, we, you know, that's that's a if that's where they start, then the kind of energy Robert's talking about in terms of investing in it uh, doesn't ever happen. And I think so often we think people think, oh, if I go to a banquet or I go to the Martin Luther King service once a year, I'm all in here, and, and, I, and I'm helping solve the problem. Uh, and in some ways, of course, that is a good step, but it's, it's, it's such a first step. Uh, I think for churches, we would do way better if we would figure out um, a strategy to invest in the long haul uh, so that there's a more persistent like we know with our families, with other people, with God, if we don't invest time, it's hard to build relationships. So I think the same is true here. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? This is great, and thank you all so much for having me on your show. Hope your ratings don't go down. <laughs> well, and I appreciate Robert coming today. 
uh, but also for his willingness to be vulnerable in the city. I mean, he's been willing to show up at a lot of different places and say hard things uh, to help our community. Um, so it's great that we're able to be here today, uh, but also appreciate his leadership across the city. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been the Ascends at Boston Avenue and Committing Faith in Public podcasts. Boston Avenue is located at 1301 South Boston Avenue in downtown Tulsa, Oklahoma. Please check out our social media for more information on what's going on. We can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you. This has been Committing Faith in Public, a podcast from the Religion and Public Life Initiative at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Copyright PTS and Gary Peluso Verdend. The views and opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect an official position of Phillips Theological Seminary.